0: Mr Cummings, are, are, like right, yeah. are you going to consider your position, Mr Cummings? Obviously not. You're not going to you consider resigning? The public are probably very angry. Do I you think so? You guys, po-
1: you guys are probably as about, right about that as you are about Brexit. Do you remember how, how right you were all, all right about that?
0: They doubled down, they denied, they accused, and they ended up with a massive political storm.
1: It was one of the biggest news stories of the year, an important insight into our country's handling of the coronavirus, and a slightly bizarre tale about politics and power in a pandemic. The flouting of lockdown rules had already cost a government scientist and Scotland's chief medical officer their jobs. So when the Prime Minister's controversial chief adviser Dominic Cummings drove his family the 270 miles from London to Durham when his wife had coronavirus symptoms and strict stay-at-home guidance was in place, well, that was a big deal. The story was broken by Daily Mirror political editor Pippa Crerar and Guardian reporter Matt Weaver. Both Newcastle University graduates, by the way, Pippa and Matt teamed up after realising they were both pursuing tips that Cummings had travelled to the Northeast. The journalists spent seven weeks working on the story and Cummings' actions and refusal to apologise dealt a blow to trust in the government and it impacted on people's willingness to follow lockdown rules and guidelines, according to recent research. I called Pippa to discuss the story, and I began by asking her to recall the context and the background.
0: So we were at the height of lockdown, and all of us were living these very strange lives, working from home um, in many cases. And I certainly was spending a lot of time sitting at a desk in my bedroom, a makeshift desk, as the kids ran riot downstairs and tried to control them. Uh, while holding the government to account in my role as political editor of the Mirror, organising sort of the daily press conferences with my press gallery chair hat on and and generally sort of trying to sort of balance the sort of much of the horror actually of covering the pandemic with the feeling that it was a responsibility on us to challenge the government and make sure that that our readers were informed about what their plans were. And this was after Boris Johnson had gone into hospital and we had had a couple of lobby briefings number 10 briefings which were done down the phone during the lockdown in fact still are done down the phone at the moment and questions had been asked about where Dominic Cummings was and whether he was working from home or whether he was working in the office he'd been spotted sort of coming in and out of number 10 a bit during that period Um, didn't think anything of it at the time stories moved on we were much more concerned about what was happening next with the lockdown, PM's health appeared to be on the mend. And we were kind of thinking about actually emerging from it and when life might be able to, to start to sort of return to normal. And I remember the date, actually, it was April the 19th. I was sitting at home on a Sunday working and got a phone call from a contact who said, you'll never guess, I've just had my friends call me from the North East, uh, call me from County Durham and say that they've just seen Dominic Cummings in Huffle Woods and I said well that you know that's pretty bizarre if it's true I mean your first reaction as a journalist is always to say well is it true is it because he can identity it can't be true it's locked down he shouldn't have been there and um asked whether they'd talk to me and then the conversations continued we very quickly got a photographer down to the woods but um the photographer we had in the region at the time was up in Northumberland and had to get down to County Durham so by the time they'd got there they didn't manage to take any pictures of anybody and we over the next couple of days put it to number ten, who were sort of I'd say evasive at best and downright untrue at worst, Um but were nonetheless stonewalling on it, and sort of worked for a couple of days on it and really was struggling to get anywhere. And then I spoke to my, or, or we got a, a brilliant northeast editor, Jeremy Armstrong, who's based in Newcastle, who sort of talked him I talked him through it all because it's one of those stories that you think if this is true then there's something seriously wrong here and we should be we should be doing everything we can to try and find out and Jeremy said oh god you know there was uh I got a couple of tips a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago that he was in that he was at his parents home and I checked them out but nothing you know it didn't amount to anything so I, I put it into the um you know he was so busy with, with covering the pandemic um from the front line that he put it in the sort of you know the, the file the sort of mental file all we journalists have is you know come back to it at some future point sort of thing, and that was the future point. So I sort of said to him, well, I think there's something in this. Can you go back to them? And and so we then deployed all our journalistic resources, which were obviously quite limited during lockdown, to trying to find out whether there was they were true or not. And we came across other tips and. Other leads and and sort of just really old fashioned traditional journalism, putting in the calls, pursuing leads, asking questions, trying to piece it all together. Quite often you'll get a tip off by email or by phone and somebody will say, oh, I've heard this. And you're like, well, how did you hear it? Who did you hear it from? And they'll say, well, my mate said that their mate said something okay, well, will your mate talk to me? And then that's a bit of a negotiation. And eventually the mate might say, yes. So you go and talk to the mate and, they, and they're saying, well, actually it wasn't me, it was my next door neighbour's auntie. So you sort of go through the roots of the people. And sometimes you get down to the sort of the last person. They're like, oh, no, no, no. It's just something I read on Twitter. And it actually wasn't anything to it at all. On other occasions, it's somebody who said, yes, they, they definitely were here, but I can't talk about this on the record or I can't sort of betray the trust that this person's put in me or, you know, there are other reasons for them not being able to talk to you. And then occasionally you hit gold and somebody is prepared to, to talk to you. We, however, came up against a brick wall and we had our first source and we thought, well, this is great, we have them. And we have rumours that he was there earlier as well in March. Um, sorry, earlier in April. Um, but we weren't just able to get it over the line. And on a story like that, particularly when number 10 are being unhelpful we and evasive, it needed to be double sourced. I mean, it just, it couldn't, one source wasn't enough to do it. So we and there was no photographic evidence or sort of documentary evidence of the type that, that might replace a second source. And then I got wind through people I was talking to in the northeast that the Guardian was also looking at something. And then a rather unorthodox collaboration began. Um I had previously worked at The Guardian and knew people who were sort of, you know, at editor level, um deputy editors and news editors and so on. And with the permission of my bosses who realised that this had a potential to be a great public interest story, we put aside conventional journalistic rivalry and I approached The Guardian and said to a friend there, um, a former colleague, look, I'm going to be up front with you. I've heard that you're working on this story too. This is what we know. I didn't divulge enough detail for them to sort of go off and publish anything but this is what we know and i'm told that you also know xyz and i know that this is a really unorthodox approach but would you consider working with us and pulling our resources because this is a big national interest story and it feels to me that we can't get it over the line ourselves and nor can you so they went away and they talked about it and thought about it and there was a lot of sort of trust issues going on. I mean, a lot of it, when it came down to it, they knew me and trusted me but they hadn't done this sort of collaboration with the Mirror before and I do sometimes think that there are stereotypes of newspapers and it works both ways but we'd already sort of Got to grips with the fact that we were prepared to ask the Guardian Guardian to collaborate. They needed to get their heads around about whether they wanted to collaborate with the Red Top Tabloid and you know all of that. But they came to the decision that actually yes, they did because they, as I later found out, had been in a similar position. They had various sources but couldn't get it over the line.
1: Do you think, Pippa, that Matt and the Guardian would have approached you with the idea of collaborating?
0: So he had only just found out that we knew, and he says that he was livid. He was like. God damn it, they're going to get to the story before me. It's my story. This can't happen. And then very quickly afterwards, before they had a chance even to have that discussion, I made the approach. I suspect, no, Matthew, as I now do, that he as an individual would have been quite happy to. I don't, I mean, I can't talk for The Guardian institutionally. I don't know whether they would have done. Um, it was as so often is the way with these things. It happened through personal relationships. And maybe they'd have... You know, a friend at The Guardian would have said, oh, I hear you looking at something. I mean, I, I just don't know. But th- that was the way, you know, it worked anyway.
1: You mentioned journalistic instinct. Was it difficult for you to lay aside those competitive instincts that we have as journalists and to choose to collaborate instead? I
0: felt that time was running out. We've been, Jeremy and I had been on it for several weeks and I mean, like, you know, four weeks or so, and we had done everything we thought that we could do, of course, Maybe somebody else would have called up with another tip that would have eventually given us what we needed to publish alone. But I didn't think that was happening. And I was aware that time was moving on and we were moving out of lockdown and or certainly planning to move out of lockdown. And I thought sort of actually it was a story of a very particular moment. And I felt that it had to be done then. And there was lots of discussions about how we, you know, we didn't we never had sort of like a formal written agreement, but there was lots of emails to and fro about how we. Um, what the rules of engagement were going to be, if you like. So, for example, we, after much discussion, came to the decision that we couldn't just be a little bit in, we had to be all in. So we were going to share everything that we each had up until that point and anything, this was the difficult bit, anything that either of us got going forward on this particular story. So if either of us got extra other tips or other leads, that we would share it all. And I think on reflection, that was the only way it could have worked. But at the time, it felt quite quite a sort of a bold strategy and then there was there was other there was other areas of agreement of agreement such as neither of us would publish unless both of us were going to because we were conscious that one newspaper's capacity for taking risk might be different from another's or they might be getting I think actually to be honest the legal advice was fairly similar and our lawyers knew each other you know sort of Fleet Street lawyer circles are not very big so so that was all okay but um but there might have been sort of reputational reasons or you know one one organization might have been more risk averse than the other for whatever reason and while the other one might have wanted to go ahead and we we couldn't be in a position where one took all the credit for the other's work so the deal was if we'd only publish if we were both ready to publish which caused some issues down the line because you know inevitably with a story like this there was a degree of sort of anxiety and nerves but then once Matthew and I actually talked and our sort of bosses left us to it then it was incredibly collaborative and I've got a huge amount of professional respect for him and also think that he's a brilliant journalist. And thankfully he thought the same about me. So, you know, it was actually a very easy relationship, working relationship to have, if not a little bit odds to be sort of talking, spending more time on the phone to him than I was sort of, you know, talking to my family in the same house for, for, you know, quite a period of time. <laughs> What we had at that point was that we knew then that he had, or we believed then that he'd been in Durham. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, there was a, a sort of a clip which laterally became quite well known because somebody put the Dancing Queen music, I have a Dancing Queen to of him running out of number 10, sort of did the rounds on social media. And we now know that, of course, he was rushing home to check on his ill wife uh, and then eventually later that night getting into a car and driving up to his parents' home in Durham. So what we knew then was that we thought that he had been in Durham, seen at his parents' home. We had a witness who said that they'd seen him outside next to the car with Dancing Queen on the radio And um, then we also knew that he'd been there. We thought that he'd been there, I should say, on uh, April the 19th, seen in Hufflewoods. And then there were some other sightings as well. The difficulty was Number 10 continued to stonewall and we weren't sure whether this was one trip or whether these were separate trips and therefore which bit of, you know, if either of the aspects of it were not right then we were worried about being in a position where there's then liability across the whole story so we didn't feel in a position while it absolutely strengthened the story for both of us we just didn't feel we could still quite get it over the line and then what changed it all was um, um, Jeremy put in a call to Durham Police and said and this was on the Friday I can't remember the exact dates it's the 22nd or 23rd but on that Friday of of, um, of May, um, Jeremy put a call into Durham Police and said, we we have witnesses saying that they've seen Dominic Cummings in County Durham, and, you know, what do you say? And and they were sort of like, well, there's been social media reports. And we were like, well, um, not social media reports, these are our own witnesses. And Durham Police then issued a statement saying that they had been out to the property and spoken to the family about Mr Cummings's presence in in the northeast and that was the official independent corroboration that we needed that he was there so that got us over the line the statement didn't come back until about four o'clock in the afternoon. And then we were all like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Having said all week, are we going to publish? Are we going to publish? Suddenly we were like, no, this is the moment we have to publish it. And it was it was just before, I think it was like the, the early summer bank holiday weekend. Um, it might even have be been school half term, so the Commons wasn't sitting that the following week. And it was a Friday afternoon at four o'clock. Normally, when everyone wants to go off to the pub, obviously lockdown. But after the garden to have a beer or whatever. And kind of like the worst possible time to try and get a story of that magnitude over the line but we everything had been legal to high heaven up until that point it had been written rewritten rewritten you know the copy was good to go so it was more just about agreeing when we how when and how we were going to break the story and obviously we went back to number 10 and they didn't say any more to us than they'd previously said um so sort of the sort of evasion and, and stonewalling um and no commenting and then we um and then broke the story we agreed we would break it online at 8 p.m and we'd splash it on our front pages the next day and at that point we made a decision that we would because we'd had the police corroboration of what we regarded as potentially the first visit up by Cummings we decided to hold back the Hufflewoods the Bluebell Woods aspect of it till the next day to see what happened with the first bit my feeling very strongly was there was no need to complicate the story. We should go with the what we felt was probably the strongest bit of it at that point. And so we did. So we published. And then, I mean, what happened that night is kind of, you know, public record now. There was no official response from either Cummings or from number 10. Uh, I later found out that he hadn't permitted them to put out a response on his behalf, much to the frustration of some there. But the mysteriously appeared sort of friends of dom being quoted on twitter by a select few journalists dismissing it as a you know left-wing campaign um by you know by campaigning newspapers um a load of rubbish i can't remember the exact exact turn of phrase but it was it was effectively dismissing it and then on saturday morning when he was filmed by various broadcasters coming out of his house dismissing i think he was i think a reporter said to him well, it's not really a very good look is it you know to have broken lockdown rules when the rest of the country was abiding them and he said well nobody cares how it looks and you know I just thought to myself well you know actually everybody cares and that was the you know that was the thing about the whole story which really got me was that number 10 had prided itself since the election since before the election because of its sort of you know the vote leave connections as being in touch with the people and out of the bubble and you know, not caught up in the in sort of the Westminster world, which, let's face it, can be very sort of inward-looking. And yet they didn't seem to understand. They thought that this was going to be a bubble story. They didn't understand that people had made sometimes really big sacrifices to follow the rules, and the vast, vast majority of people had followed the rules. And yet he was the man that was writing them, breaking them. On the Saturday, we got a call, well, an email, and then called back a man called Richard Lees, who lived in um, Barnard Castle, not far from where you guys are now, um, saying that he'd spotted Dominic Cummings and his family in Barnard Castle during that period again. We'd had the explanation from Number 10 at that point that they'd gone up there because they were worried about childcare for their son, although they didn't end up using it. The suggestion being that he'd stayed in his parents' home the whole time. And then we, of course, had this man saying, well, actually, no, he hadn't. And actually, the funny thing about it was that for both of us the next day, so we in The Observer and the Sunday, Mirror, did the same again. We, did, we broke the story online at, at sort of seven or eight o'clock and then we did the stories the next day. And for both of us, we kind of majored on, you know, more witnesses saying that he'd been up there claiming that they'd seen him in the woods in our case. And The Observer sort of, you know, did fresh witnesses come forward saying they've seen, uh, seen Cummings. And the Barnard Castle stuff was in both of our papers, but it was kind of like, you know, 10 pars, six ten 10 of the story. It wasn't sort of like what we were majoring on, which actually now seems a bit weird when you consider sort of how the totemic status, symbolic status, the, the, that particular part of the story took on subsequently. Is this the way to Barnard Castle? You see, my vision's a bit of a hassle. Is this the way... On Sunday, Boris Johnson pulled in Dominic Cummings to number 10 and they spent six hours talking about what to do about it, which kind of struck me as a very long time. If, indeed, Cummings could turn around and show his boss the you know, the data evidence and the photo evidence that he, he said, the phone evidence that he later claimed to have had, why would it have taken six hours to work out a strategy? And, you know, it was, it was classic number 10, they they doubled down. They don't like admitting they're wrong. They don't like admitting mistakes. They didn't think that he'd done anything. He didn't think he'd done anything wrong still. And they still didn't seem to re- realise how much it was resonating across the country. And they thought it would all go away. So, you know, on the Sunday, Boris Johnson went and did a, or he sent out half of his cabinet. I think it was just, um, Grant Shapps on Mar and, you know, about half a dozen cabinet ministers, Jenrick Gove um, and others were asked to tweet messages of support for Cummings but there was rumblings amongst the Tory backbenchers and I was getting texts and messages from Tory MPs up to cabinet I have to say Um, some cabinet ministers messaging saying what a story and what the hell did he think he was doing and you know regardless of his arguments about exemptions and and sort of you know loopholes in the law um, he broke the spirit of the rules and that's not on and on the Sunday night Boris came out. Boris Johnson came out and did this press conference, which is sort of unprecedented for him to do—one of the daily ones at the weekend—and dismissed part of the story as palpably false. Didn't say which bit, and again was sort of you know let's move on, let's put this there behind be us.
1: Many other allegations about what happened when he was in self isolation and thereafter—some of them palpably false—I believe that in every respect he has
0: acted responsibly and legally and. With integrity, And then, of course, we had the really astonishing spectacle of, of the Rose Garden at number 10.
1: Sorry I'm late. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Yesterday I gave a full account to the Prime Minister of my actions between the 27th of March and the 14th of April, what I thought and did. Where, Where
0: Cummings apologised for nothing other than being late and even then didn't sound like he was particularly concerned about it. And then gave this incredible sort of narrative of, of you know, events from his perspective, which both with that and the questioning afterwards emerged that he had decided to travel to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. And I think it was the incredulity with which that particular claim that was met that, that did for them, <laughs> um, because it then sort of cast out on the whole story. And I still think that if he'd come out on the Friday night and put his hands up and said, okay I did I shouldn't have done this and I'm really sorry I was just really worried about my kids and the, you know the prime minister was ill and I was ill and it was all just you know it all got too much for me and I made a very human understandable decision to get to family people would have empathized they'd have understood there'd been sort of 24 hours of headlines and it would have all gone away but no they doubled down they denied they accused and they ended
1: up with a massive political storm. No, I don't. I don't regret um, what, what I did. As I, as I said, I think um, you know, reasonable people may well disagree about how I th- thought about what to do in, 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 in the in the in these circumstances. But I think that I think that what I did was actually reasonable in these uh, uh, um, uh, in these circumstances. And how did you feel, Pippa, when Boris Johnson accused the media of misreporting?
0: I mean, I have always had great faith in our sources throughout, but inevitably, the prime minister accuses you of getting of getting parts of the story wrong, and wouldn't say which bits. I have to say, you worry, don't you? You think, oh, are my sources not up to scratch? Is there some issue here? The fact that Robin Lees had gone on the record helped us, and he was an incredibly credible witness. He was a school governor. He was a scientist. He understands the importance of of, of evidence. And he was prepared to put himself on the line and got some flack for it. Um, he was a very solid witness. So, and then, and then, obviously after the Rose Garden, Room Cummings sort of admitted everything really about what that we claimed about the first part of the trip. It really felt, you know, it felt vindicated. But there was still that that aspect of it that with Number Ten and the Prime Minister was sort of being dismissive of some of it, and and actually. They weren't, we weren't the only ones to feel a bit unsettled by it because on the Sunday night, so this is after the Prime Minister's press conference, but the day before the Downing Street Garden, Dominic Cunningham's event, um, there was a couple, Claire and Dave Edwards, sitting at home up in County Durham watching the press conferences and the press conference. And he was a, he is a Tory voting businessman and she is a, a care nurse of, you know, three decades standing who had worked in the care sector for the NHS And they were watching that same statement. And when the Prime Minister said the word's palpably false, they got in touch because they said they had been also in Hufflewoods and claimed to have seen a man that they saw. They, like our first witness who became known in shorthand as Bluebell, because they were always off the record. They claimed they'd also seen Cummings that same morning in the woods and that they hadn't done anything about it at the time because they had thought it was... Pretty astonishing that he was there, but they knew it was local. But you know, what would they do? Really, they weren't sort of you know the types to go to the press or whatever. And they knew it was that date because it was the day after their son's birthday, and they'd had to have a Zoom party because obviously of lockdown. And that they wouldn't have really done anything about it had it not been for the fact that the prime minister had had claimed that that was false. Claire got in touch and had a long chat with her on the Sunday, and then Jeremy went out to see them on the Monday, and they obviously watched the Rose Garden story. And so then suddenly we had uh, the Rose Garden event, and then suddenly we had on the record witnesses who were prepared to say, actually, we did see him there on the nineteenth. And they, you know, they were very, they, they were so convinced that they'd seen him that they reported it to the police that day. And so this is once the story had broken, not initially, and signed witness statements. Um, and again, were very very credible witnesses. And then the Rose Garden happened, and Cummings was so specific in his denials and actually it was a very carefully worded phrase about him having phone and data evidence that showed he wasn't in Durham it felt like it had been run past the lawyers which made me suspicious I have to say but but it's it's quite a thing for a newspaper to have a bit of information to have published a story to have had the prime minister infer that an aspect of it was wrong to have his most powerful advisor then do an unprecedented press conference and say that an aspect of it it was wrong. So this is like the second trip back up to Durham. And to have two more really credible sources saying, no, actually, it's right. and still having massive faith in the first source. It's a really difficult call. I mean, do you put it on the front page the next day? And already there was sort of 40 Tory MPs publicly calling for Cummings to go. Um, the Daily Mail called for him to go I have to say neither the Mirror nor the Guardian did because we didn't want to open ourselves up to this is a political attack out to get his head it was never supposed to be about that it was never supposed to be about the man it was about the principle and I have to say you know both organizations were had, had sort of a reputational issue to think about do you stick with it when you're ahead do you kind of like bail out if you like when you're ahead when you know you're getting credit for having broken a big story which they've admitted to and which has done damage to the government trust in the government and also to the prime minister for standing by him and it has had really sort of quite dramatic impact on on people's lives and their sort of whole sort of faith in the government and in the in in what they were being asked to do to to tackle to get on top of coronavirus or do you press on regardless and double down on it yourself and so we had the internal quandary at the guardian and the mirror And ultimately, the decision was made that we weren't going to publish that week. And Matthew, Jeremy and I were disappointed by that, but we also understood it. And the story sort of rumbled on for about a week. And I think it still has, it still resonates with a lot of people, um, particularly now as we're going back into lockdown again. But obviously then, you know, moved on, moved on to other things.
1: In hindsight, do you think it was the right decision not to publish?
0: I don't think so. But then I never thought so. But then, you know, admitting that you sort of I mean, it's the reality of having sort of a grown up relationship with your employers is that you you thrash all these things out and people come to different conclusions. I can understand why the decision was made not to publish at that point. But Matt and I didn't give up. And we um, recruited a... An investigative specialist, a guy called Duncan Campbell, who'd been involved in like the Cambridge Analytica stories and so on, who's a who's a sort of a data spe- computer sort of data specialist, and you know acts as a an expert witness in criminal trials and so on. Um, and we recruited him to help us try and find a sort of a data thread. And obviously, this isn't the 1960s or 70s when you could go down the pub with a friendly copper and say, "Oh, do you fancy checking the police number plate database for me?" anPR can only be done by really Durham and um you know we weren't sure they they'd, they'd come to the conclusion that there wasn't um enough evidence for them to continue looking into April the 19th so we tried to get hold of CCTV we spoke to try to get more witnesses we found a fourth witness who said that they'd seen him in the woods that morning as well and really the story could have then gone at any point but then you're sort of into the territory of well when do you run it? Do you just run it randomly out of nothing? And then the the Edwardses had put in a subject access request to try and get information about what the police had looked at, and that came back, and they weren't satisfied with the information that was shared with them. So they decided that they were going to go to the police watchdog and put in a complaint about Durham Police. And suddenly, once again, that was our peg, because it was sort of like an official, independent event that gave us the opportunity to put them on the record. So we did the story. We did it um in the summer, and we knew when we published that it was wasn't going to have the impact either with the public or with the media or with particularly with number ten as the first story. Number ten didn't change their response at all. You know, we've moved on, but both Matthew and I and the guardian in the mirror felt it was really important to get it on the record because it was kind of like the final bit of the jigsaw that, you know, Cummings says he wasn't there. You now have four people claiming that they did see him, including two who've gone on the record. People can make their own minds up, and I just think at some point in future it will matter that that was on the record, and that now is you know something that people can refer to when they're when they're looking at it.
1: And I have to wonder, Pippa, are you disappointed that Cummings didn't resign, or that he wasn't sacked?
0: Well. I don't think there was ever a moment where I thought that he was going to resign as a result of it. I know how, or knew how reliant the Prime Minister was on him. And I'd also, in a previous job, worked quite closely as a journalist with Boris Johnson and seen him, as Mayor of London, hang on to staff who or deputies who had sort of, you know, fallen foul of the rules and should have really, in other circumstances, gone And whether it was loyalty or whether it was his fear that anything that could be interpreted as an admission of failure or a mistake or a lack of judgment would be used against him, I don't know. But I knew that he didn't let people go lightly in general. And with Cummings in particular, it's such a double act at number 10. And I know that there was no way that Boris Johnson would have let him go. And... There is nobody, there was literally nobody else, I think, that could have got through that period and survived with their job. He was the only person that could have done that and got away with it. And I think actually, everyone comes into journalism for different things. Mine was never to come in to sort of clean political scalps. There's a bit of sort of like macho banter in the lobby about it, but I actually think in some ways the impact of him staying and of the public thinking he got away with it means that that whole one rule, one rule for us, one rule for everyone else continues. And if he had gone then, it would have been seen to have been dealt with. And I think, you know, there were polls at the time, 70% of people, including Tory voters, thinking that he should have gone. That was a decision for the Prime Minister and a judgment for the Prime Minister to make. And I think by keeping him, it weakened him. And he needs to live with that.
1: And looking back, what are your thoughts about the whole episode?
0: In terms of sort of the personal impact, it's it was obviously it was clearly a story that made waves, um, and I'm really, I, I'm glad we did it. I think that I still think it was in the public interest, although I do concede that that's difficult because there is an argument and there is some sort of sort of academic research suggesting that the Cummings effect meant that people didn't then abide by the rules as much as they might otherwise have done. And maybe it's because we were getting to the end of lockdown and they were fed up anyway and the sun had come out and everybody wanted to go to the beach. But if you remember the next week, there was lots of pictures of people out and about and they were sort of using Cummings as an excuse. Now, I've been asked in the past whether I regret that and whether knowing that that might happen should have been a reason for not running the story. And my response is always no. I I thought the story was really significant um, public interest uh story to tell and it exposed sort of it shone a light on the hypocrisy that that existed in at that moment at the top of government and actually if the responsibility for the dominic cummings lies with effect lies with anyone it's not with me or with matthew is with dominic cummings
1: and finally, anything that has actually encouraged you as a result of doing the story?
0: Yeah, well, it was just, it was the collaboration, actually. It was the most unusual, unexpected thing, but it ended up being absolutely brilliant. And I think journalism is stronger for two organisations putting the journalism first and the rivalry second. And I'm not saying that every story I'm going to do, and certainly not every story I do from now on is going to be a collaboration, but it kind of just restored your faith in why why newspapers exist and and what editor's priorities were and it just it was it felt like a very positive step for journalism that we were prepared to go all in and work on this together and get an outcome that we all wanted
1: you've been listening to a podcast by the civic journalism lab supported by newcastle university